to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Our challenge this morning is not to understand the passage because it is so well known. Our challenge is going to be to appreciate it afresh as we look at the story of the prodigal son, so well known to all of us. However, I think we can consider this passage freshly because of the first verse of Luke 15, 11, which says there was a man who had two sons. And so there are three people who have to be considered in this story. It begins, verse 11, with the words Jesus continued because he's teaching the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who have no heart for the lost. Uh, They do not like sinners. And the question is, how's Jesus going to get through to people who don't like sinners, who don't like outsiders? And the answer is that in Luke 15, he gives a triple lesson in what God is like. He gives three stories of celebration where lost things are found. And he shows anybody who is careless about the lost that they are not like God. And so we saw last week that the shepherd goes after the missing sheep, finds it and rejoices with his neighbours and friends. The woman goes looking for the lost coin, finds it and rejoices with her neighbour and her friends. And today a father waits for his wayward son. When he returns, he rejoices with all his household. Incidentally, some people think the Trinity is there in the three stories of Luke 15. You've got the son in the shepherd going out looking for the sheep. You've got the spirit in the woman who searches the house, lights up the house. And you've got the father, of course, waiting. You need the three stories of Luke 15 to make sense of salvation. The first two teach the initiative of God, who goes seeking and searching. And the third story with the Father teaches the welcome. So by the time you get to the end of Luke 15, we've discovered that God is a God who initiates salvation and welcomes the returnee. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the start, he's the finish of the process. Now, the third story that we come to today of the prodigal son is the climax of the three because we actually arrive at a person. We've looked at a sheep, we've looked at a coin, and now we come to a person. And we know, even from the memorials which are conducted every now and again for those who have died in tragedy or war, that the world is still interested in reading out the names of each person or recording the names of each person because a person has a name and a significance beyond, of course, anything or animal. Now, with that introduction, we're going to look at, first of all, the son who returns, and then we're going to look at the son who refuses, and then we're going to look at the father who rejoices. And those are our three quick points this morning in a packed morning. First of all, the son who returns. If you want to look at the passage in your Bible, it's on page 1035. Luke 15. Now, the story of the prodigal son, of course, is the story of the world, the whole human race. The story of the human race is the story of men and women in every land, in every generation, as it were, turning their back on God and walking away. And what the prodigal son does in grabbing his inheritance, his future, for his immediate indulgence, is the story of the human race. 
And if you can get a big lump of money, that's just about everybody's dream, isn't it? Just about everybody's dream to get a big lump of money. And I've concluded in my life that when you've got a big lump of money, the best thing to do is to spend it on your senses. And so we have people who indulge their taste, their touch, their sight, their hearing, or their smell. And that's about it really, isn't it? When you've got a big bunch of money, you have to put it really into the service of your senses. And that's what this young man does. Uh, Very important to know that God is not against the senses, nor is he against money, because he's the maker of both. The problem that people make, and we make this as well, is that we think we would be doing well if we could get just a bit of distance between us and God. We're very happy for him to stay in the background, especially supporting and providing, but we would like a bit of distance so that we can really indulge and enjoy ourselves. And we then find that as we make our distance with God and we substitute something or someone else for God, they turn out to be a terrible God. And so this experiment was tried, for example, with communism, the ultimate distance from God. And one historian has written about communism, dethroning God, they found it impossible to leave the sanctuary empty. They put man in his place, which had the effect not of elevating human nature, but of demeaning it to depths of cruelty, depravity and stupidity unparalleled in human history. And so slowly but surely you have to learn the lesson, we have to learn the lesson, that to replace God is to ruin us. And exactly the same under capitalism. We use our cunning to exploit other people in our own interests so that we can then spend the profits on things which have a tendency to either demean us or control us or dissatisfy us. What we need is to learn the first lesson of Luke 15, which is the importance of fellowship with God, close fellowship with God, so that every other thing which he has generously given us from the surf to the football to the flowers to the music, is that we can enjoy it in an ordered way because he is the God of order. He enables us to enjoy his gifts without imbalance. But of course, we know this young man and the rest of the human race has walked out on God and many of us who belong to Jesus Christ in this building this morning know that we also wander away for short or long periods And it is deep in our system, strangely, to do it. And that's why this story is so valuable for the non-Christian as well as the Christian. If you're not a believer this morning, we're delighted that you're here. And this story is really for you. God is a God who welcomes the outsider. But it's also a story for the believer because God is a God who welcomes his children when they drift back. And the return is very wonderful, as we know, and uh, the two parables of the sheep and the coin remind us that God is at work in the process of bringing people back, but he's also there to welcome. What is it that brought this young man home? Well, there's a number of things that helped him to come home. One is that stored up in his brain, he had the information about God, that God was a good option. And I imagine that almost all the world considers God to be a fairly good option up the sleeve if everything else goes wrong. 
I imagine that's why a lot more praying goes on in hospitals and airports than in other places. Uh, But why go back to God when you've got your health and your wealth and everything else to enjoy and you think you can do without Him? This, of course, is the insane view of God which operates in all of our brains, unfortunately, which is that we think that God is not so good and if we get close to Him, He'll wreck things. And we also have the insane view of the substitutes that they can do the job, but of course they never do. One Puritan writer 300 years ago, Thomas Merton, wrote these words, To try to be happy by being admired by men, or loved by women, or warm with liquor, or full of lust, or getting possessions and treasures, that turns you away from the love of God, And then the men, the women, the drink, the lust, the greed take precedence over God and they darken his light. And then we're unhappy and afraid and angry and fierce and impatient and cannot pray and cannot sit still. That is the bitter yoke of sin. And for this, we leave the mild and easy yoke of Christ. Well, I'm sure you understand that old faithful paragraph. And so the information about the father is there in the mind of the prodigal son, but never appeals to him, of course, until his resources run out and the famine sets in and suddenly he's got no human answers and all his friends seem to have deserted him. And we come to this terrific line in verse 17 that he came to his senses. And that, of course, is the phrase that describes Christian conversion. I know the world thinks that when you become a Christian, you lose your senses. But the fact of the matter is that when you become a Christian, you come to your senses. You suddenly realize that God is good and that you are not and that he has all the resources and you do not and he's welcoming and you're you're set apart from him and you come to your senses and that's the first thing that happens. And so when you become a Christian, one of the first things you say is, I see my need of God. And not only do you see your need of God, but you also say at that point, I see that I am a person in very great trouble, and the only solution to get back to God is the cross, which is the bridge back to him, and I'm going to trust Christ and what he has done. Now, of course, uh, that information is not in Luke 15, but it's in the rest of the Bible, and the boy returns home. And to his credit, he makes no excuses. He blames no one but himself, and he turns his story into a prayer of confession, And he says, Father, I've sinned, Father, I've sinned. And he hopes that he might get a slave's welcome, and of course he gets a welcome much greater than anything he could have asked or imagined. So that's the story of the boy, the son, who returns. Now don't miss the the second half of the story, which is the son who refuses. Remember, the whole story is told to Pharisees and teachers of the law who have no interest in unworthy returnees. And these Pharisees and law teachers, they're like the older son. And Jesus gives more than a third of the story to them. It's a very clever story because if you turn with me in the text to verse 28, what the older brother says has a great deal of sense. Let me read verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you 
and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, I think that's very clever because um, we identify with his complaint to a certain degree. This older son had been a loyal, hard-working boy. There's no party for him. Uh, why is it that the father is willing to reward waste and disobedience with a celebration, but faithfulness and service seems to get nothing? And you can see on the surface how this older son, who refuses to celebrate, has a case. And the more we identify with him, the more I suggest we are in trouble. Because this older son does not seem to have the capacity to think outside himself. He has been enjoying for a long time a kind father and the benefits of home, but he is thankless. He can only talk about, verse 29, slaving, whereas in actual fact he's probably been enjoying. He's been treated like a son all this time, and he calls it being treated like a slave. He is the sort of person who is impossible to please. He has no sense of compassion for the lost. He would only have blame for the boy who's come home, and he wishes that his father would punish him for reappearing. And so here is, a, here is a man, a son, an older son, who measures everything in terms of his performance, not in terms of what he has received. He might have said, I've been very privileged to have the father all the time, and now this son who's been in a hopeless mess has come back, and that's wonderful, but he doesn't. He doesn't have any joy. He doesn't love his younger brother. He's ungrateful for his father. He is totally unlike God. He is totally unlike the joy of heaven when outsiders and lost people return. And even more seriously, he refuses, you see in verse 28, to go in, even when the father comes out and pleads with him to come in. And so this older brother excludes himself from the banquet, which has been the theme of the last series of sermons. Do you remember God is all about a banquet? And here is a, a man who doesn't want to be in it. He does want a banquet, of course, but he wants a banquet on his terms for his performance. He does not want to be part of a banquet which is celebrating grace to sinners. So here is a guy who is known as Mr. Respectable. He thinks of himself as being very up and aloof, looking down on everybody else, assuming that God rewards for performance, whereas God waits for people to come and confess their sin and then celebrates by grace. And that's what the problem is with Pharisees. And there are Pharisees in the first century and there are Pharisees in every century. And you can see how the older son is in need of a transformation. It'd be good, wouldn't it, if he had a brand new view of himself? It'd be good if he had a brand new view of his brother? It'd be good if he had a brand new view of his father? But he doesn't. And I suggest as we read this Luke 15, we need to not only first learn the lesson of the younger son, which is come home, but we also need to learn the lesson of the older son, which is want people to come home. And I suspect that we are meant, all of us, to see ourselves fairly clearly in one of these two brothers. That is, there are people who need to return and there are people who need to rejoice about people returning. 
And uh, one of the great problems, of course, with the outside church people is that they don't really hear the message of return or don't listen to it. And one of the problems of many of us who are inside the church is that we don't really care about those who are outside. It's just part of our nature. And we are very good at indulging ourselves and having sort of celebrations and worships and all sorts of things which are good for us. But we're not really very good at making the sort of sacrifices which help others to believe. There's a great deal of self-indulgence, isn't there, in the church, which we need to recognize and repent of. One of the churches that I visited in Perth, they decided that they would put off the communion service, which was their regular Sunday service, so that those who came as visitors would not feel pressured to take something which wasn't really appropriate. I thought this was a remarkable piece of flexibility on the part of the congregation. And we need to ask ourselves whether we would be prepared to put away those things which are really important to us, but which would prevent others from understanding properly the gospel. And so sacrifices are part of the gospel as well. We need, in a word, to be like the Father who rejoices, and he's the third person and the last in this story. The portrait that Jesus gives of the Father is very wonderful. I don't know where we get our views of God that he's cruel and difficult and stingy and dangerous to get close to, but part of our sin is that we distort the view of God And we need to go back to what Jesus says, because here's a father who's provided everything. He watches his son walk away, although we know from the rest of the Bible that he controls all circumstances. He welcomes the son home. He doesn't give him any lectures or conditions. He's more interested in the safety of his son than he is in all the losses that he has incurred. He goes out to the older son, who's a pain in the neck, And he pleads with him to come into the banquet and he explains as carefully as he can the cause for rejoicing. And by the time we get to the end of Luke 15, we do not know whether the older son ever went in. It's left in the open. Ten years ago, Ian Powell came and preached a series of sermons in the evening congregation. It was an excellent series and one of them was on Luke 15, a very fine sermon in our tape library. And he finished with a story which you may have heard before, but it's always good to hear it again, and I want to finish with it as well. And it concerns a lady apparently in Brazil whose daughter ran away from home to the big city of Rio. The mother had pleaded with her not to go, but the daughter ran away anyway and ended up with the mother's worst fears as a prostitute. The mother sold almost everything she had and paid for fares to go into the city and to go around looking for her daughter. She took hundreds of photos of herself in the photo booths and she stuck them up on the walls and the posts and the bathroom mirrors and every sleazy part of town. The girl, of course, had been too ashamed to return, but one day when she was coming down the stairs of her flat, she saw one of the photos on the notice board. She took the photo off and she saw that her mother had written on the back and probably on the back of every photo, Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it does not matter. Please come home. That's really the message of Luke 15. God the Father says to the world, in a sense, whatever you've done, whatever you have become, 
it doesn't really matter. Please come home. And that's the message which God sends to you today if you are outside his family. And that's the message which God sends through us if we are inside his family. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful and famous story. We thank you for your great love, generosity, welcome, forgiveness. And especially we thank you for a great gospel. And we pray that you would give grace to everybody here this evening, this morning, to hear it and to receive it and to respond to it and to rejoice in it. And we pray that you would give to us so many here today who are your people the heart and the sacrifices and the willingness to see it go out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.